Support for a quick timeout podcast is brought to you by our friends at Dr. Dish Basketball. College and professional teams from around the country rely on Dr. Dish shooting machines to help improve their players' development. Whether it's in the gym or at home in your driveway, Dr. Dish will improve your basketball workouts. To find out more about how Dr. Dish can help your program, visit drdishbasketball.com. Today's guest is none other than longtime college basketball coach and current broadcaster, Steve Lavin. Coach, thank you so much for joining us in this series, Remembering Coach Wooden. Thanks for having me. Looking forward to talking about a person and a subject uh, that I have great admiration for and uh, someone that uh, was central to my career in so many ways and um, still serves as an inspiring figure in terms of the standard that he sets on all fronts in life. As I talk with guests, uh, you know, instead of just talking about Coach Wooden and stories about him, I really do want those individuals to talk about their journeys and how their lives intersected with Coach and then obviously the influence that he had. You just mentioned the influence beyond him even being alive, right? And so let's go ahead and start with your path to being a college basketball coach and then being the head coach at UCLA. Where to begin? Grew up in the Bay Area uh, in San Francisco, and uh, my father was an English teacher, and uh, literature, uh, philosophy, poetry, uh, and also an author, uh, 17 books on writing and composition. And uh, he coached for a couple years at Reardon High School, uh, and then chose to pursue uh, full-time his passion and purpose uh, for teaching in the classroom. And so I do believe, uh, even though he only coached two years, his love of basketball and his uh, real joy for working with young people uh, played a big influence on me in terms of pursuing a career in coaching and teaching. And uh, my older brothers all played basketball as well. So you could say we were a basketball family. And that led to uh, playing in high school and college. I was by no means a great athlete, but fortunate to be on the team and fortunate to be a part of uh, some remarkable runs. Uh, In high school, our team went 65-1 and uh, over my last two years, my junior and senior year. And we won two state championships here in California and, and won 58 straight games at one point. An outstanding coach named Pete Hayward. And uh, I'm sure today, one of the themes of the narratives that will keep emerging is mentoring, uh, great mentors and teachers, uh, coaches, uh, people that take an interest in uh, helping others and help to encourage and and nurture uh, their dreams and uh, really give the advisement, uh, the advocacy that's uh, necessary if someone's going to have a degree of success, regardless of the realm. Uh, vocation or field chosen. So uh, I think the touch points there to give you a a kind of, you know, abbreviated version was outstanding parents and my mother and father, both exceptional teachers and a big family, six kids, four boys, two girls, and really looking up to my older brothers and my parents. Uh, They were my role models. So I think their love and passion for the game of basketball, uh, but also our parents impressed upon us the importance of education and their example as teachers uh, played a part in me pursuing a coaching career and uh, ended up graduating from Chapman University, 
And through college, I wrote letters uh, to the coaches I admired most, uh, Bobby Knight, Gene Cady, uh, Mike Krzyzewski, and uh, Jerry Tarkanian had an assistant named Tim Gergovich. And I was just pen palling, trying to hmm. learn uh, what a young, aspiring coach should do. Uh, if I someday hope to walk in their shoes uh, as a Division One basketball coach, what were the reading lists? Uh, what were the clinics I should attend? Uh, what were the steps I should take uh, in preparation for pursuing a career in coaching? And then when I finished my playing eligibility, uh, I visited those four programs, UNLV, Duke, Purdue, and Indiana. And I spent the most time at Purdue and Indiana, three weeks uh, studying Bob Knight and uh, two weeks uh, with Gene Cady at Purdue. And when I finished up college, I uh, went back, worked their summer camps, and I was fortunate uh, that Gene Cady had an opening on staff 32 years ago, and I was able to get in as a graduate assistant, entry level. And uh, that's where the Coach Wooden connection started, because Coach Wooden was a three-time All-American at Purdue under Ward Piggy Lambert. And so we had a lot of commonalities. The fact my father was an English teacher, Coach Wooden was an English teacher. Uh, my father played at the University of San Francisco for Phil Wolpert and Pete Newell. And of course, UCLA back in the day, uh, early in Coach Wooden's career, late 40s, early 50s, they played the University of San Francisco uh, on an annual basis. So from Purdue, you know, I was able to, through some serendipity, uh, some good fortune, uh, meet uh, Mark Gottfried, who was an assistant at UCLA, uh, who introduced me to Coach Herrick. And uh, Coach Herrick was attending, actually, the USA trials up in Colorado Springs. And Trevor Wilson, Tracy Murray, some former Bruins, were up there trying out for the team. Jim Herrick was attending the practice sessions. And Coach Katie uh, was the type of head coach that allowed his assistants to really get involved, be hands-on. And so I was fortunate to be able to work with the defense and work with footwork and conditioning and uh, some of our defensive concepts uh, that I learned at Purdue under Gene Katie. A relationship with Coach Herrick developed, and um, knowing Coach Wooden definitely was helpful uh, because of those Purdue ties and, and the time that he came back to Purdue and, and would visit his alma mater. And uh, so I was able to get on board at UCLA in 1991-92. And from there, things moved quickly. Before you know it, I was the head coach at UCLA at 32 years old after Coach Herrick's dismissal. I started as an interim coach, and they were going to do a national search. Uh, but no doubt the advocacy of Coach Wooden helped. And so there's no doubt uh, having Coach Wooden as an advocate, as an ally and a friend helped uh, because it was a time where uh, universities were not as frequently as they are now uh, hiring search firms. And so it was in-house. And uh, by February, they lifted the interim tag and was able to coach UCLA seven more years as a head coach and 12 years overall. So just grateful to have had the opportunity to coach at a world-class university, to have been an assistant coach on that national championship team, to have learned from John Wooden, to have worked with so many talented, gifted uh, student athletes at UCLA. And uh, it really was a game changer, a life changer. It sounds cliche, but uh, my opportunities at ESPN and ABC as a broadcaster, um, I returned to coaching at St. John's, and now even at Fox Sports and CBS and Turner uh, are all a result of the first opportunity at Purdue with Coach Katie and then the opportunity under Jim Herrick at UCLA and, of course, uh, the guardian angel, guardian angel uh, in Coach Wooden. Do you remember the, that first time that you met Coach? You know, uh, Purdue University, we were honoring him. It was like a basketball family reunion. Hmm. And, uh, you know, there were other years where maybe a Rick Mount or a Joe Barry Carroll would be honored. But 
my responsibility as a young assistant uh, was to make sure Coach Wooden got from point A to point B, uh, from the airport to campus, to his hotel, to the meals, to the different events, to the book signing. I remember fans were lined up seemingly out to the cornfields uh, from the bookstore where he was autographing his books and really taking time, you know, with each interaction, uh, each fan, and whether it was taking photographs or personalizing the message, uh, wasn't just a quick John Wooden autograph, uh, but connecting. And that was really emblematic of his entire career and his interest in young people and his interest and curiosity in life itself. So that weekend kind of Purdue basketball family reunion honoring Coach Wooden was, was memorable. And then moving forward, of course, uh, there's some other really interesting time spent with him. We'll talk more about those times in a minute, but I do want to talk about your rise to becoming the head coach there at UCLA. You look up in the rafters and there's jerseys of basketball players that everybody knows, arguably the best college basketball players of all time. The greatest coach in the history of college basketball to that point had, had been the head coach there. What was that like? And did you call on coach at all during that time to help with things or give you advice with things? Yeah, it was really natural. It wasn't as though once I became the interim head coach and eventually the permanent head coach that I suddenly began turning to Coach Wooden. He was someone I had such admiration for mm -hmm. uh, that I was visiting him uh, at his apartment in Encino on a frequent basis. We'd get together for a breakfast, uh, a lunch, a dinner. Uh, he naturally was coming to campus some, would occasionally watch practices, was at every game and could always pick up the phone and call him. So that element was seamless. Clearly, it was helpful uh, to have Coach Wooden uh, advocating, but more importantly, just providing some expert perspective and wisdom. The pearls or gems came at a pretty fast rate anytime uh, you were in a conversation with Coach Wooden. And uh, surprisingly, I think for some, often the discussion wasn't basketball. You know, it might start with basketball, but he really was a teacher that used metaphor and, and basketball in its purest form should be a metaphor for life in terms of the important values or virtues that we learn through team sport that uh, transcend the game itself and sustain us for life beyond sport. And that was really Coach Wooden's philosophy. Uh, the court was his classroom. Eventually it became Poly Pavilion. It was his classroom, and the locker room was an extension of that classroom. And uh, obviously, you travel with the team on the road, uh, so those are the equivalent of field trips and opportunities to challenge yourself in tough environments. Uh, but Coach Wooden, because of his background as an English teacher uh, in Dayton, Kentucky, and then South Bend Central High School, Indiana State, and of course, uh, being in the armed services with the Navy, I think also shaped his sensibilities and was a powerful form of education for Coach Wooden. All those experiences, and then people forget 27 years at UCLA. So he was also learning and growing, refining and enhancing his own teaching methods uh, in those first 15 years at UCLA. And then, of course, the last 12 years, 10 out of 12 championships and seven consecutive NCAA championships and the 88 straight wins and I think four or five undefeated seasons. Uh, but really, when you reverse engineer from that outstanding run, it was a coach that was interested, had a, an appetite, an insatiable appetite to learn in all aspects. So when you would go over to visit Coach Wood and he'd be touching on Gandhi, 
Martin Luther King, Mother Teresa, Shakespeare, Winston Churchill, and uh, scripture, and uh, did that in a natural way, never forced uh, when it came to talking about his faith. Rarely brought it up unless you asked the question. And then he would, you know, explain his inspiration, which happened to be Jesus Christ, because he was a Christian. But interesting, when speaking of faith in Coach Wooden, the last time I visited him in 2010, uh, shortly before I became the head coach at St. John's, uh, he was doing a deep dive on all religions, uh, Hinduism and Judaism, and Catholicism and Latter-day Saints. And, and I thought that was so interesting and, and powerful and inspiring that at 99 years old, just short of his 100th birthday, he was doing a study on world religions, looking for the common threads uh, and not the differences, because he spoke of you know, the carnage, uh, genocide, you know, the bloodbaths that had occurred uh, because of different religions and the differences in those religions. So he was looking for the commonalities, the golden rules, so to speak, that run through all religions. And that uh, example uh, was so powerful that as he was coming to the finish line of his own life, he was even more curious about the uh, mortality element and what was next. It was emblematic of his curiosity about every aspect of life and always trying to improve and to learn and to grow. And that flexibility is one of the reasons he was successful at all of his stops coaching at different levels. Indiana State was Division II when he was with the Sycamores. It was prior to Larry Bird, Indiana State Sycamores. And of course, high school really was the building blocks and where he developed the pyramid of success because he wasn't happy with the grading system of an A, B, C, D, or an F. He didn't think it really encompassed uh, the scope of someone's potential or abilities or the different type of intelligences. And that's where the pyramid success uh, came from. When we hear the name John Wooden, a lot of us do think pyramid of success. So when you hear pyramid of success, what thoughts come to mind? Well, it's the ABCs or the one, two, threes of key ingredients uh, that go into achievement. And I looked at the pyramid of success as a helpful compass that those traits, the attributes, uh, the characteristics that are central to leading a good life, uh, to achieving as individual, but also being a great teammate uh, that will add value to any organization. So you could call it a formula, uh, ingredients, ABCs, one, two, threes. The pyramid really breaks down in clear, uh, concise form, translates uh, what it takes to be successful in life. And I think for every person, the pyramid will lead you in a different direction. And that's what I like about the pyramid, the flexibility, because we're all different. Coach Wooden understood that. And it really is about, you know, getting closer to the full expression of your potential. And if you're using that pyramid as a tool in teaching or coaching or leadership or parenting, you can almost utilize it as a diagnostic instrument or tool based on a child, based on a, a group that you're working with and uh, really pinpoint. And sometimes I just like to read it uh, without any particular outcome or purpose in mind uh, because they are such important fundamentals of life. They're keys uh, to success. And, and ultimately, as you know, it's about the peace of mind, right? Of knowing that you've done your best. And, and that's so important 
because uh, if you do that on a daily basis, uh, you're going to move in the right direction. And if you do that each day, right, it creates a better tomorrow, a brighter future, and something eventually you'll be able to look back on with pride to know that uh, you tried your best in whatever the engagement happens to be uh, in relationships, uh, your family, uh, the community, your chosen career. And so uh, it's a powerful instrument or tool or model. I call it again, a compass to, to help navigate life's challenges, both the high points, uh, but also uh, the challenging points in life where we face adversity. You're somebody who's still involved in the game a lot. You observe a lot of practices, games, coaches, the way that they do things. If coach were still coaching today in mind of the changes that the game has had over the last you know, even the last 20 years, I don't want to ask how would he do? Because I think both of us feel like because of that pyramid guiding him, there probably wouldn't be much difference. But the question that I want to ask is, what do you think that he would do the same with his teams or with his boys? And maybe what would he do differently? Well, I think it would be based upon the current set of circumstances because uh, flexibility was clearly one of Coach Wooden's strengths. And that's why, again, he was able to coach student athletes that were coming back on the GI Bill from World War II. And he had been in the service himself. And that informed uh, the way he worked with the teams that had players who had been in the service and were older and had experienced the same things Coach Wooden had. Yet he also was coaching at UCLA during civil rights, uh, during Watergate, and so he comes to UCLA in the late 40s and is coaching some guys that fought in the service. But then at the end of his time at UCLA, he's coaching Marcus Johnson. And you think about, you know, the spectrum of uh, different generations of players. And it was his flexibility uh, that allowed him and being a great teacher. And, you know, he took psychology classes in the spring at UCLA. He would audit those classes because he knew he was getting older. And yet he was continuing to work with student athletes that were the same age between 18 and 22. And so partly through hiring the right assistants, the Denny Crumbs, the Gary Cunninghams and others, he helped bridge that gap in terms of the generation, uh, but also his interest in psychology and understanding that to engage young people, uh, to motivate, to bring forth their best, he had to be aware of the latest kind of breakthroughs in human psychology. And that goes back to being interested and being curious. And he also did that each offseason in basketball. He'd take one area of the game, whether it was free throw shooting or zone defense, zone offense, an element of basketball. And he would seek out uh, someone that in his view was the best in college basketball in that area or you know that particular element of the game and would learn do a little crash course, a mini course. Mm -hmm. And sometimes he said he didn't necessarily even implement, let's say, a zone defense, but he had a better understanding on how to attack a zone because he was going to face zone defenses. So it was kind of inverting uh, his thinking and being open again, flexible to adapt and adjust. So with that said, I think he would be as successful as any coach in the country. So he'd be right there with you know, the younger coaches like Tony Bennett or Jay Wright in terms of the level of success they're having and up there with Coach K, who over a period of decades has had a remarkable run. Coach K is probably the closest to John Wooden of this generation. 
in terms of decade after decade. There are others. Dean Smith was Jim Calhoun, Lou Olson, Tom Izzo, Roy Williams, uh, Jim Beheim. I mean, there's some master teachers and coaches who've done it for decades, uh, but no one's done it as well as John Wooden. No one dominated as John Wooden did over that 12-year period. Uh, but again, I'll never forget the time you told me, Steve, I was a slow learner, but once I figured it out, I was pretty good. <laughs> as you always would with the twinkle in those blue eyes and the deadpan expression, that was a cue or a clue that some humor was coming. Uh, and that helped, you know, the slower learners uh, that were listening to someone that was so bright, uh, so gifted, so intelligent, like John Wooden. He said, it took me a while to figure it out. I was a slow learner. He goes, but once I figured it out, I was pretty good, you know. And that really is, again, indicative of his approach. Uh, incrementally, each day, the children's book, you know, about inch by inch, just get a little bit better. And we don't have to improve 10% each day. Let's just improve fraction of 1% and start putting that together day after day, you know, week after week, month after month, year after year. And so it gets back to what are we doing with our time and even breaking that down 60 seconds in a minute, 60 minutes in an hour, 24 hours in a day, seven days in a week. And that's the best way to measure. And it goes back to why I wasn't happy with the A, B, C, D, and F because some students are starting behind others and yet they're making just as much progress, but they didn't start with the advantage that maybe another student did. And another student that's out in front may not actually be living up to their potential, and yet they're out in front uh, because they started at a different place uh, based on a different set of gifts and makeup and, and whatnot. So Coach Wooden would be outstanding. At the time of this recording, our country is going through some things related to race and racism. And I know it was something that he cared about because if you even read his books, he addresses that. And um, you've already alluded to it in the way that he treated people. If he were alive today, not to speak for him, but just based off the interactions that you've had, the things that you've observed, what kinds of things would he have for us? And what would he want us to learn or to be thinking about during this difficult time? Well, number one, his favorite American was Abraham Lincoln. And so Emancipation Proclamation and everything that Abraham Lincoln stood for in terms of the kind of revolutionary ideas and the change that uh, Lincoln was a catalyst to. And, you know, his favorite person was Mother Teresa because of her compassion and a life of service uh, dedicated to those who were less fortunate. And so uh, love you know, was a central theme when speaking with Coach Wooden, whether it was his poetry, whether it was scripture, you know, whether it was anecdotal in terms of drawing from stories of others. And so he just had that uh, caring and giving uh, nature. And he set that example. It was his actions and his deeds, right, uh, more than words. And uh, he was a wordsmith and had a command of the language and uh, enjoyed uh, literature and poetry, but truly it's the way he led his life. And the most powerful form of teaching is leading by example. Again, going back to parenting, teaching, coaching, uh, management. I remember the story he would tell about one of his books that he wrote, and it might have been the first edition, where he said something about handling players. I think it was Lou Alcindor, later Kim Dul Jabbar, that pointed out, Coach, you know, you handle objects. 
you work with people. And so uh, it goes back to Coach Wood not seeing color. Uh, he was aware, obviously, of racism. But when he dropped in to teach or coach uh, for those two hours on the practice floor, he was uh, sharing life lessons because he had the best interests of his student athletes at heart. It wasn't informed by someone's color or race. And uh, similar with religion, you know, he made it clear to me that he didn't think at a public university it was appropriate in the locker room or on the court uh, to be professing your faith. He said if a player came to him uh, when they were traveling or on a, you know, a long road trip at the airport or came into his office or was visiting him at his home and they asked a specific question about Coach Wooden's you know, walk with God, his faith, what it was inspired by, uh, then he didn't hesitate to open up, but out of respect to all the different faiths and the fact that UCLA was a public university in Los Angeles, a very diverse community, and it's that old kind of separation of church and state, mm -hmm. and uh, he felt there was good reason for that, uh, but that didn't mean that he wasn't going to lead a life inspired by Christ and to model, you know, the virtues and, and the values that he learned through his faith. Uh, but also out of respect. And that's why at the end of his life, he was doing the deep dive in these other world religions and, uh, and looking again for the, for the golden mean, the commonalities uh, that would bring these different faiths together, as opposed to the differences that divide people and, and lead to things that we obviously now regret looking back in terms of the history. I think it was basically an approach of love and care and not, you know, grounded what color or race or religion uh, someone came from. This week is just simply remembering Coach Wooden. What would you want people to remember, Coach, by or remember about him? You know, I'd say kindness and the humility, uh, the time he would take with, you know, young people, older people, uh, the interest, genuine, authentic kindness and interest in others. Uh, he was so other-directed. And that was such a powerful example. Also, his curiosity. While he had this intellectual curiosity, he also had that joyful, childlike curiosity and interest. There was a lightheartedness and a sense of humor. And his, you know, older players from early in his career uh, would point out sometimes, we knew a different coach wouldn't. So like all of us, he was evolving and growing, adapting and changing. But he was open to that. You know, there are some that aren't open. They don't have a mindset that allows them to be flexible, to adapt and adjust. And he proved that coaching the 40s, the 50s, the 60s, and the 70s, you know, parts of those four decades uh, that he could adapt and adjust because he was interested in others. Uh, it was a sport he loved, and uh, he was a teacher. But he had a, a sense of humor, uh, a wry sense of humor. He loved Bob Newhart, that deadpan, kind of understated, clever, quick wit. He um, was never vulgar or crass, but really enjoyed life and, and got a bang out of life. I know there was a dark period right after Nell passed, his only sweetheart. And as you know, he continued to write letters to her after her passing on Valentine's Day, on their anniversary, you know, any kind of special date on the calendar uh, that was meaningful to Coach Wooden and Nell, he would write a letter to her. And uh, those were on his bed, uh, double rubber bands stacked uh, a lifetime of letters. He ended up burning all those letters because A, I think he felt there was something sacred about them. 
And uh, as he said again with a twinkle in his eye, uh, when he was in the service, there's some things that he wrote to his sweetheart that let's say maybe were a little frisky and he didn't want anyone else uh, to be privy to those letters. Mm -hmm. And um, so again, with his quick wit, uh, lightheartedness, good sense of humor, he was curious and interested to the end. And I think that example was maybe the most lasting for me because in the final moments that I had with him, he was doing a deep dive on world religion and wanted to discuss that. Whether it was religion or some other aspect of life, I think it's interesting that it was religion because he was coming to the finish line after this remarkable life of achievement. Uh, there's some humility there about still being open to learning. And I think it's uh, emblematic of his entire life. And it's really the legacy that he's left us. And I think he helped people learn how to learn. You know, he would bring up the laws of learning. Number one, you know, explanation. Number two, you know, demonstration. Number three, repetition. Number four was correction. That's refining and improving. And then going back to the top again, demonstrating, you know, ex explaining and demonstrating, then repetition over and over, mastering it, a certain aspect of the game, whether it was footwork or feeding the post or uh, creating a passing lead or something defensively in that zone press. But the repetition was key, but then correction. How do we get better? We got to continue to improve upon it because if we're practicing the wrong habits, you know, then that's not going to serve us, our purposes of, of trying to be better and to, to ultimately achieve and, and to play the game the right way, which will lead to the winning. And that was another interesting element. Didn't talk about winning, but he did touch on all the things that uh, were a byproduct of winning and all the ingredients that go into success, which is winning. But that doesn't mean that you can't have a losing season or you can't have a losing streak, but you got to persevere, which he was able to do in those first 15 years at UCLA. And then he hit that magical 12-year run from 63 to 75, I think, if I'm not mistaken. But yeah, so I, I'd say the giving nature, uh, the loving nature, uh, the, the example that he set for all of us, and the curious or interested a childlike curiosity, as well as a real uh, intellectual curiosity uh, in ideas. Cervantes comes to mind as well. You know, one of his favorites was, it's about the journey and what we learn through the journey. And that's why I was so fortunate for so many years to have him as an advocate, uh, as someone to lean on during my own journey, beginning as a young head coach. And even prior to that, as an aspiring assistant coach at Purdue and then aspiring assistant coach at UCLA and then eventually the head coach at UCLA and then these different other stops in broadcasting and a return to coaching and back to broadcasting. But up until 2010, uh, he was someone I could call for that direction and advice. And, and sometimes he just framed a subject in a manner that you saw it through a different lens or prism. Uh, he never would tell you what to do, but he would nudge you in a certain direction. And that's where I go back to compass, you know, he would give you some tools, a flashlight, a compass to navigate your own path uh, because he never wanted to impose his way. He wanted it to be your way. Matter of fact, that was one of the keys was be true to thyself. You know, heard that quote a thousand times mm -hmm. uh, being around Coach Wooden, that you can't try and be someone else. Are there aspects we can learn from, good traits that we can emulate from others, our parents and role models, but that ultimately you have to be comfortable in your own skin and do things the way you see fit. And even though it's trial and error and you're going to make mistakes, uh, you're better off doing that than trying to be someone else. You even say, imagine if you tried to put my clothes on 
or you tried, you know, to put my clothes on, or I tried to put his clothes on, you know, he said, we wouldn't feel very comfortable. You know, you've got to be comfortable uh, in your own skin. So I think that that's another kind of powerful lesson that coach Wooden was able to teach, but never in a sermon. Uh, there was always humility and dignity and, and never forcing. So looking back now, the last question that I'll ask you is of those John Wooden quotes, maybe it's one that you've already mentioned, maybe one that you haven't, but which John Wooden quote has had the biggest impact either on your life or as you look back and evaluate day to day or jobs that you've had has impacted the way that you live? You know, I'd say it's a couple. One is the obvious of doing the best that you're capable of on a daily basis. So when your head hits the pillow, you can sleep at night because at the end of it, you can only focus on the task at hand, the present, the moment, and do the best you can within that. It's natural to look forward and maybe have some anxiety about your future. Uh, it's natural to look over your shoulder and it's okay on occasion to look back long enough to learn, uh, but you need to quickly return to the present, the gift of this moment, make it the best possible day. And that's how we create a better tomorrow. So that's where his peace of mind comes in to play. The other, I think might be paraphrased from Churchill, but he used it often. And it was a life without giving is a life not worth living. And so really to do enough, enough self-examination and make sure uh, that you are other directed, that you are a sharing and giving, whether it's philanthropy, uh, whether it's uh, volunteering, there are so many ways to share and to give. So uh, a life without giving is a life not worth living. Boy, there's so many. There was one other. Here it is. This one might be paraphrased from Lincoln. The, great, the greatest thing we can do for those we love is to not do for them what they're capable of doing for themselves. And that's tied to self-reliance, that it's in the struggle that we truly grow and learn uh, resourcefulness, ingenuity, stay in the course, stick resolve. It comes from a confidence, a self-reliance in knowing that you've solved problems. Life's going to keep throwing you curveballs. There's going to be riddles that are unexpected that we have to solve. And that's what I loved about teaching and coaching was, you know, each player, each team presents different challenges in a sense, like a great New York Times crossword puzzle. And uh, if you're interested, then uh, being challenged by the difference in each individual player and each team and over the course of the season, all the things that happen uh, from injuries to, you know, heartbreaking losses to, you know, the chemistry issues uh, that come up. But that greatest thing we could do for those we love is to not do for them what they're capable of doing for, doing for themselves. Now, the catch there is, as a parent, as a teacher, and a coach, you have to also know when they're struggling and they need a lifeline. Or put it this way, if they're drowning, they need a lifeline, right? Um, but if they're struggling, it's sometimes best to let them struggle and, and work through it so they develop that ability of resilience and how to come back uh, and some self-reliance in there as well. But a coach or a teacher or a parent has to also know when it's diminishing returns and you need to intervene because you love and care about them. And there are times we do need to intercede and help them. And there'll be enough challenges ahead of them for them to work on resilience and develop that resolve down the line. And knowing the, the difference, the distinctions, I think that's a feel, that's intuition, uh, that's mastery, and that's why Coach Wooden was a master teacher. He had that ability uh, to know just the right time to say something, 
you know, whether it was picking up and leaving a voicemail message, whether it was writing a very thoughtful note, just providing some encouragement for someone that was dealing with discouragement. And uh, those that are discouraged often need some encouragement. And he had that ability. I know in my 12 years at UCLA, it was a gift. It was a knack, a feel, like a special antenna that he had on when to give me a ring or when to invite me over uh, to his house for a visit or for breakfast uh, at Froman's or Zips, you know, some of his, his favorite dining establishments. I never forget the way he would make uh, his oatmeal was so particular, the way he prepared that oatmeal with uh, brown sugar and raisins and uh, looking at those fabulous hands of his that had, you know, obviously had the ball in his hands as a player, Hall of Fame athlete, but also as a coach instructing with that ball in his hands. He had these fabulous hands and his penmanship was so precise. And you would think about how many lives those hands had touched both, you know, symbolically, right, but also physically, like literally and figuratively, those hands had touched so many lives over his fabulous coaching career and beyond. He, he retired at 65 years old. He went another 34 years old touching people's lives. I had hoped for a mix of stories and applications and the, the impact that he had made on individuals and you, and you provided just that. So thank you so much for all that you shared and for making the time for us today. Thanks, Tony. Just really quickly, if you haven't heard yet about Anchor, it is the easiest way to make a podcast. It's free. There are creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. Anchor will even distribute your podcast to Spotify and Apple Podcasts and other platforms so your show actually gets heard. You can even make money from your podcast no matter the size of your audience. It really is everything you need to make a podcast all in one place. So download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. That'll do it for this episode. Thanks so much for listening. We'll talk to you again at the next time out.